Welcome to the OG Advocates Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Megan Evans and I'm here with Talia Coney and Katie McHugh. I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Louise King. Louise is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Oh, and she's also a lawyer. She is very interested in medical ethics and is currently vice chair of ACOG's Ethics Committee and chair of the Ethics Committee for AAGL. She also recently wrote a paper entitled Double Discrimination, the Pay Gap in Gynecologic Surgery and its Association with Quality of Care. So we're really excited to talk to Louise today and dive into this double discrimination that probably many of us can identify with. And Louise, I just want to start off because you do have such an interesting past how did you follow this journey from lawyer and then to physician? And yeah, just want to hear about that. Oh, I, I'm so happy to be here and talk to all of you. And I'd love to answer that question. The, there's a long version, but I'll give you the shorter one. Um, I got a degree in French literature and uh, I realized that that was incredibly lucrative. So I went to law school and in law school, I um, ended up interested in so many different things, but I stumbled my way into um, clerking for a couple of state Supreme Courts and and learning a lot about constitutional law, and then uh, dovetailing that into running what's called an indigent pro bono clinic. So a clinic for people who can't afford legal care in Texas. And what I realized was the vast majority of people who were coming to us for care, uh, for indigent uh, legal care, were women who had run across problems because they couldn't control their reproduction in a way that was meaningful. And so they had children that they hadn't been able to plan for. And then they had money issues or they had medical issues and medical bills. And then they had landlord tenant issues for monetary reasons and all of that. Um, And so I saw that as a significant problem and started looking into the ethics of it. I became an ethicist then before going to med school and then realized if I really wanted to talk about um, all of these intertwining features of um, ethics and women's health and reproductive justice that I probably needed to get a medical degree. So the initial plan was just to get the medical degree and and perhaps still work in the legal and ethical field. And then I uh, fell in love with surgery. So I went down a whole different path. Um, before we dive into your commentary, can you give us a brief pri- uh, primer on how physicians are reimbursed? Um, work in total RVUs, procedure codes, et cetera? I can do my best. I'll confess I'm not an expert in this. And and you should all know that at ACOG, we have incredible experts in this who could give you hours of conversation about it because it really is that complicated. But the basic gist of it is in the 1980s, um, when they created this system, they did a bunch of studies. Actually, it was the Harvard School of Public Health that led these studies, and they created their approximation of the average amount of time and effort and expenditures in the, in the form of, um, you know, disposable equipment or overhead cost or liability insurance, all of that, all of that gets bundled up into an idea of the relative value units assigned to anything that you do. And so it's, it's a combination of all those factors. So that's what an RVU is. And then that RVU every five years is reassessed through survey work run by the AMA. So they send surveys out to all of us. I'll tell you, I've never received one um, personally. And and a lot of people tell me they haven't received one. So I assume those surveys are going out in a random fashion. Um, 
but you're supposed to fill those surveys out and then they adjust the codes to accommodate changes in work patterns and the like as represented in those surveys. Um, our membership in ACOG is notorious for not filling out the surveys much. I think we have a 1% response rate. So you can imagine that that's not a very robust set of data to draw from to correct for how long it takes to do a hysterectomy or how much the disposables cost or et cetera, et cetera. On top of the RVUs that are assigned to each code, there's also a conversion factor that gets changed every year. And then there are other features of the billing practices in turn that are get much more complicated than that. So depending on if things are billed as global periods, for example, like the entirety of care for a surgical procedure. Um, so there's a, a lot of complexity in it. Um, that all determines what Medicare will pay but then private insurers use that as a benchmark, a jumping off point. So these RVUs affect all of us, even if we don't treat Medicare patients. I have a follow-up question to that. So I think it's interesting that you said that AMA sends out the survey. I'm assuming they're only sending out to sending it out to OBGYN members who are also AMA members, like OBGYNs who are in the AMA. I don't think that it's done in that way. I think that they use lists provided by the ACOG. Okay. Um, so, so it should be, and, and I do believe that they do it randomly. I just think it's interesting in all my years of practice, I've never received a survey. Um, and, and it's also, you know, we all do such very different things. Um, even within um, generalist or specialists in OBGYN um, practice, there's still foci that we have, We're, we still all kind of niche ourselves, right? So depending on who you reach and of the 1% who respond, I don't think they're getting a particularly valid picture. I think it's important to say too, that under the social security act that establishes the system, the secretary of HHS can use many different methods to get at this, including true, totally independent study of a, of a particular topic. They don't have to rely on surveys. It's just that that's the way it's always been done. So one thing that I would love to see is pressure put on the CMS and the secretary to move forward with a formal analysis of um, billing in obstetrics and in gynecology and how it compares to other areas of medicine, specifically in gynecologic surgery, how it compares to urologic surgery. Yeah, what a terrible way to collect data. <laughs> we all know that surveys are not uh, a good way of collecting a lot of data too. I mean, what I think the Green Journal now, you have to get at least a 60% response rate in order to even get published. And we're, we're polling in a 1% response rate. So not great. It's not great. And there was a wonderful paper that was released recently. And I, I apologize. I can't remember the journal it was in, but they basically made the case for why not use EMR data uh, or OMR data, however you want to call it. Why not use things that we're collecting already? We have all the operative times. We have the amount of time that we spend in office with people. Now that the billing has changed, we're, you know, we're billing for not only the if you're billed by time, at least you're billing for face-to-face -face time and the time you took to review doc documents, records, et cetera. So it's all right there quantified. Why not use that information? Why are we using survey data? Yeah, it seems like a very archaic system that they're holding on to from the past, which needs to be greatly updated. I agree. 
thank you so much, Dr. King, for your background information. And now I would love if you could tell us about what you found in your research. I'm super interested, especially in your findings specific to the lower reimbursement for female procedures versus the equivalent male procedures and so forth. But I'm so excited to hear your thoughts about what you found in your research. Oh, I'd love to talk about it. Um, so I was really just summarizing other people's work, I'll have to admit that, and making an argument um, that we really need to address all of this. So there were two papers that came out, one in 97 and one in 2015, or 2017 is the paper, but it was 2015 data. In any event, they grabbed a whole bunch of CBT codes that they felt that they were able to match anatomically. So they were looking at gynecologic surgery versus urologic surgery and things that matched, right? They're not going to perfectly match, but but should be relatively equal in their billing. And what they found was that on average, um, urologic surgery build a third more than gynecologic surgery for typical things that they do. And that's just based on the RVUs and there's many other factors that come into play there. But based on the RVUs that are available to bill for, urology was billing higher. And I've actually repeated the data with 2021 uh, RVU codes and nothing's changed. So um, it's just not changing. Uh, the other thing that we commented on was that if you look at the overall salaries and potential salaries that we report, and this is work by a sociology group. Um, so the ACOG workforce study or similar studies in urology and in pediatrics and other areas of, of medicine. If you compare OBGYN as a specialty and urology as a specialty, as more women have joined the workforce in OBGYN, the salaries have gone down while urologic salaries have gone up. And we see that in many areas of many different professions. The most uh, common cited example would be teachers. So as more and more women join the workforce of teachers, those salaries went down. Pediatric salaries have uh, also, pediatrician, excuse me, salaries have also gone down um, over time as more women have joined the workforce. Um, there's certainly a debate about whether cart or horse. So is it that OBGYN has always been, been devalued, which is my position. And, and I believe that's definitely true. I think dating back to the 1980s when the Harvard so School of Public Health set these RVUs, um, both obstetrics and gynecology has been devalued from then moving forward. We've made some headway, but it's always been a problem. And there's another uh, group of excellent researchers who propose that, again, as women join the workforce, um, salaries decrease. It's probably a little bit of both. I think what's important to recognize is that most OBGYN departments are what are called loss leaders. So even if you debate those papers uh, that compared, excuse me, gynecology and urologic billing, even if you debate that on, on a bunch of technical terms, the fact of the matter is that most OBGYN departments are loss leaders. They don't tend to cut, to break even. They tend to lose money, but hospitals keep them in place and keep them at the foreground of their delivery of services because they believe that as women gain trust by delivering their babies within the hospitals, they bring the rest of their families to those hospitals. And by contrast, urology is typically a, a very highly profitable um, um, discipline. So in the aggregate, it's obvious that obstetrics and gynecology are undervalued and, and we need to address it. 
Well, that's enraging on <laughs> <laughs> all fronts. <laughs> um, oh God, I have so much to say about that on so many different levels. And this is just on the heels of, and I know many of us have been sharing that on our Instagram feeds, but the New York Times reporting that we're one of eight countries in the world that don't pay for maternity leave. And it's just this general theme that like women's work, whether that is caring for a newborn or caring for your parent or, you know, delivering someone's child is just undervalued. And, you know, how did we get here? And we're just, it seems to be going in the wrong direction. I agree. It is. I do believe it's going in the wrong direction. And I, I also want to say that I get to work with a lot of people at ACOG who are really trying hard to move the needle in the right direction. But the system as it's written, it, it, there's very little room for movement. So under that same act that I told you about that established all the RVUs and, and that CMS um, works under, there's a clause called budget neutrality. So if I try to push for increased billing in either obstetrics or gynecology, that money has to come from somewhere else. Anything I push for the money is going to come from somewhere else. There are obviously every year the budget increases by a certain amount, but anything over that certain preset amount um, has to be sort of shared by everyone. And so the fear is always, if you push too hard, you won't get what you want or you'll anger other people or um, there's so much negotiation there. And so within that system, truly creating equity between gynecologic services and even obstetrical services and other areas of medicine, I think is near impossible, honestly. But I see other roads forward. The other roads that I see um, rely primarily on our constitution. So under the 14th Amendment of our constitution, of course, there can't be discrimination and specifically can't be gender discrimination. And there are also provisions within the ACA that prevent any discrimination in delivery of care or in billing um, for that care. So I would argue that given that the discriminatory effect that exists for women in terms of the billing that we have available to us, that was present from the time the Harvard School of Public Health put forward these RVU systems and is evident in the fact that OBGYN departments are loss leaders, I'd argue that that represents gender discrimination. So what do you do with that? Um, you could start a lawsuit. I think lawsuits take too long. As a lawyer, I can tell you the worst thing you can do is try to push through a lawsuit. It would be much better if we could really draw attention to this, get um, various congresspersons or senators um, interested, and I have spoken to some who are interested in this issue, and really put pressure on the secretary of the HHS to do the studies that they can do under the act to figure this out and figure out what would be fair and how we could create equity and billing and access to care for women. So what would that look like for you? Uh, how would you design the system if you were able to get into that room and advise the um, elected representatives, how would you design the system? That's a great question. I would want people who are expert in the system to be present. Um, so I'm not an expert in the system. And, and so all of, we have, again, wonderful people at ACOG who are just brilliant at this, who could really get at 
how do we create um, billing and, and uh, reimbursement for gynecologic and obstetrical care that allows departments of OBGYN to act competitively within the hospital systems in which they operate. So um, all I do is gyne surge. I, I don't deliver babies anymore. Even though I absolutely love L&D and I love delivering babies, I've focused always on surgery. It's incredibly difficult for me to get block time. It's incredibly difficult for me to get new equipment. And this is 12 years of incredibly difficult, not, not just recently. And I know everybody else feels exactly the same way who works in, in gynecology. Um, we are at the bottom of every list and we really have a hard time getting to the table and getting things done. And it's because we don't pull money in. So we, those are the types of things that we need to see equity in. I should be on equal footing with a urologist. I should, right? There should be no reason why um, a urologist who starts at the same time at a hospital as I do gets, you know, three days of block time and I get zero. Shouldn't be that way. Um, so the experts, I think, in RVU systems and stuff can, can give an idea to congresspersons and senators of what it would take to get us to that equal footing. And I don't want to bring urology down to get there. I don't want to use budget neutrality to, to make it so that now all of a sudden both men and women can't get adequate uh, services for their reproductive organs. That's not where I want to go. I would like to bring it up. Do you think there's any utility working with other um, health professionals, including like pediatrics, who deal with the same thing? The Yeah, I mean, I would love to help pediatricians. <laughs> Um, I think there needs to be more reimbursement for primary care in general. Um, and luckily, um, the current efforts um, at CMS are towards that. So they are actually paying attention to that. Um, what I referred to before was that pediatrics and uh, primary care haven't really kept up with the increases that we've seen in, for example, orthopedic surgery, which has gone through the roof. And so creating a little bit more parity there, I think would be good. Um, but again, CMS is on that. They're very invested in creating um, better reimbursement structures for primary care. And we see that uh, trickle down into last year's ACOG president's speech um, when she said that, you know, OBGYNs are primary care physicians. And we are, right? Um, we do a lot of primary care. So um, we would benefit from that as well. But so I think pediatricians have, have, have vocally advocated for themselves and they've been heard, which is excellent, but I would love to partner with them as well. You've mentioned a lot of um, topics that people could jump onto as advocates. So given that this is a podcast for our listeners to learn how to be better advocates and get more information about topics that they can be advocates on behalf of, where do you suggest we start? What should we what should we read? What should we listen to? Where should we go to learn more about this so that we can be effective advocates? That's a great question. Um, the first thing that popped into my head is I uh, started doing committee work for ACOG when I was in um, residency, I think. Um, and that really lit a fire for me. And I know um, I think all three of you on the call are really involved nationally with ACOG, correct? So um, getting involved with ACOG is a great way to move forward. They always need committee members. I, I tend to prefer the committee work, um, 
but there are a million different ways to get involved. And of course, there's a, a pure advocacy arm of ACOG that is incredibly vibrant and does fantastic work. Um, and then from a political standpoint, um, I, I not infrequently get to go and hang out with different legislators, whether it be state level or federal level and talk about things that I find really important. And sometimes that's just because I've called and asked if I could talk to them. And, and especially on the state level, um, that's great fun. So here in Boston, you get to walk up Beacon Hill and hang out in the gold dome building and, um, they love to hear from people um, and, and hear about the things that are most important to you, hear about your lived experience and how you think they could help you make things better. So those are my off the cuff suggestions. Yeah, I think that's great because I, I think that people are intimidated to sometimes go and contact their legislator and really it's not intimidating. And if, if anything that we try to get across is that the people who make the policies as we're talking about on this call are not experts in this. We're the experts, right? We're the ones who see the patients. We've had years of training. We are the ones that should be influencing the policy, not some of the people who write the policy. And a little plug for potentially even running for office. There's a group yeah. called Doctors in Politics, which is a wonderful group as well, if you're interested in running for office. But remember, all of our politicians work for us. We pay them. So mm -hmm. Um, they have to talk to you, actually, if you want to talk to them. Um, and their staffing people are so much fun to talk to, too, because that's honestly who you talk to the most. So definitely just give them a holler. They'd love to hear from you. I think another challenge with this particular topic is, at least for me, I find it a lot easier to talk about things that affect my patients, um, whether it's an access issue or whatever it is. Um, I find it a lot easier to talk about that than my own paycheck, which is already much more than most people in the world. Uh, I, I think I struggle with that. Um, but just I teach my residents that um, underbilling is just as fraudulent as overbilling is and that we all work really hard and deserve to be paid for the work and expertise um, that we do and have. So it I think that that may be a part of it as well that prevents people from getting involved. But it all it does is further that pay gap. Um, when we don't talk about money or don't expect to be paid the same as our as our uh, counterparts and colleagues. That's such a great point, Katie. And I'm so glad you said we get paid more than most people. And that's absolutely true. Um, and, and to be honest with you, my dream would be actually, um, uh, you know, a, a universal system of healthcare. And, uh, and I know I would be paid less under that system. So I'm perfectly happy to be paid less. But I do lead off when I talk to people about this saying, I know it seems ridiculous that I'm here telling you to pay me more. <laughs> but what I'm what I really think that I'm asking for is uh, more resources. I want our patient population to have more resources. Um, I think everyone on this call is a part of academia. And so I had a question on how we can um, talk to our residents regarding, regarding the importance of advocating for physician pay. I feel like with OBGYN, we are constantly advocating for our patients because there's a lot to advocate for. There's a lot of reasons why OBGYNs are on Capitol Hill. And sometimes I think that this topic about our pay gets lost. Um, what are some of your suggestions on how we can better teach our residents the importance of advocating for um, equitable pay within our field? 
Well, I'd repeat something that Katie said just a minute ago, which is that underbilling is just as fraudulent as overbilling, which I think is absolutely true. I would also say that I believe that this is evidence of historic discrimination. And just as we fight against historic discrimination against women in so many different areas, we should fight in this area as well. But also, the more that we can create pay equity, the more that we will get to the table, the more that we will get resources at the hospital, the more that we will get more time, get our patients in in a timely fashion. You know, I was just talking to a patient that we're not going to get in until next year. It's crazy. Um, so it's, it's more about that space at the table that everybody who has been discriminated against really needs to have. And, and without, you know, and just the, it's the way our society works without the money behind us, we're not going to get to the table. I've certainly had a lot of backlash for what I've written. And uh, some of it focuses on, um, uh, you know, why are you asking for more pay? And, and I really believe that I'm asking for more resources. I'm, I'm perfectly happy for my salary to stay steady and have that money go to more resources. It's so fascinating, too, because I think that in our field, there are so many issues that we have to advocate for or against. And, you know, we're obviously seeing what's happening with abortion restrictions. And we had a great conversation recently with um, a lawyer and an abortion provider in Texas. A lot of other fields don't have the same issues that we have. And it, it's interesting because so many of their issues are about reimbursement. But I don't always think that there's that hesitation in those other fields about reimbursement. But there is, I think we it comes up more in OBGYN and and maybe more female dominated fields. And I don't, you know, I don't know if I have a question. It's more of just thinking what you said and and you know knowing and being married to someone who's in a different field where that's the primary thing that they're advocating for is, is reimbursement and, and making sure that they're getting paid what they deserve and what they think that they deserve. Well, in studies of women's ability to negotiate for salary um, and salary increases, we're apparently terrible at it. I know I'm terrible at it. I'm, I'm miserable at negotiating for salary increases for myself, like a true personal, like when I'm at the table to get my raise. Um, we tend uh just not to advocate for ourselves in that way. So it's very reasonable to believe that that's translating itself into our uh, discipline as a whole, not advocating for itself. But all of these discrepancies in pay date back to the 1980s when we were predominantly male-driven or male-dominated rather discipline. So it's not been the women not advocating. So it's something about how we view not only women's work, but the value of the care we provide to women. And I, I, have to, I can't think of any other explanation except that in all aspects of my experience of life in these past 50 years, I've seen women be devalued in so many different ways. There would be no reason to believe that they wouldn't be devalued in in the way that we care for them in the medical field. So we, we have to do better. Do you mind if I ask you who you received the backlash from? Was it other OBGYN physicians? Oh yeah. So I got backlash from um, a number of different groups, but most of them were OBGYNs. 
And if you look online, um, the publication in the Green Journal has a link to the reviewers' responses and my responses to the reviewers. So if you want to read all the backlash, it's right there. The reviewer, um, there are four reviewers, I believe. Um, three are positive and one is long and negative and pretty much sums up all the backlash and what I say in response. That's interesting to me because it makes me realize that there may be a section of OBGYNs or whether or not it's inherited or what we hear from outside that maybe doesn't value the work that we do as well. It's interesting because again, you know, getting back to the topic of OBGYN departments are for the most part loss leaders. Um, I say that so frequently when I'm in meetings with people who spend hours explaining to me all the vagaries of the RVU system and why actually um, pay is quite equitable. Um, and I'm like, well, if it's equitable, then why can't we keep our doors open? I, you know, I mean, what you just think we don't know what we're doing? I mean, we cut corners, we all work uh, frequently, donate our time, um, work very, very hard. And, and I'm sure everybody on this um, podcast has spent weekends and nights writing notes, um, all volunteer time, right? And we still can't keep our doors open. So, but you're telling me that pay is equitable? No, I mean, maybe I can't fully explain it, but I don't have to fully explain it to point it out. Um, so uh, you'll enjoy reading the, the reviewer comments and responses. <laughs> it's a fun read. Well, and it has real implications. If you can't keep your doors open, you can't keep that maternity center open in the rural part of your state. And then you're cutting off access to a good portion of your, you know, reproductive population in that area. And, you know, especially as we see maternal mortality rates rise, I just saw recently that they've continued to go up. We're not really making any progress. Um, so these things are, you know, real, they have real consequences. Absolutely. They, they have real consequences. And, you know, my perspective is all of the examples you cited are exceptionally important. From my perspective, I can't tell you how many women I see who can't get access to appropriate surgeries, um, who are I'm having to do re-ops on and, and the like. So, so many problems. And, and I think that with more resources, so much would improve. It wouldn't obviously fix everything, but so many of these issues would improve. I wanted to lift up something that you said earlier um, that I have just never thought of. I had kind of one of those like brain exploding moments when you said it. Um, and it, it was um, about the fact that our surgeries don't pay well enough to get priority and that that creates such an access issue in and of itself. And again, for me, that really takes me out of the equation. It's not about me getting paid. It's about the access. And it's about creating that that ability and that opportunity for the hospital systems and the OR surgery centers, et cetera, to value us and value our patients in an equitable way as all of the other patients. I don't know why I didn't ever, I've never thought of it that way. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. Um, thank you for that perspective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, when you start as an OBGYN or as a MIG surgeon like myself, um, you have to then earn all your OR time, right? And that's just what we're used to. When a urologist starts, they're given block time to start, right? A lot of it because they know they're going to fill it with things that will pay. So we focused a little bit about surgery, just like you mentioned, but what about on the obstetric side? What about, you know, what can you like think about the nuances of what we do obstetrically? Obviously no other field does obstetrics, but obstetrics isn't just catching babies all the time. No, obstetrics is not just catching babies all the time. And um, absolutely, if we could create parity and billing for obstetrics, that would be so important because I think it would help to create resources to address our maternal mortality problem. But also I think it's important to realize that obstetricians are surgeons. They're in fact, trauma surgeons. They're incredibly talented. They deal with incredibly difficult, scary situations with poise and beauty. And just, it's, it's insane. It's so, in fact, like I said, I kind of miss L and D quite a bit. Um, but the, we don't pay them the, what they should be paid. And, and there's a very good argument to be made that they should be paid on par with trauma surgeons. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Snaps all around. Um, Luis, thank you so much. This was such a interesting conversation, somewhat depressing. <laughs> we have, so there's we have hope, obviously, the, yeah, there's hope. Yep, exactly. So we so Just appreciate keep out there with it's, you know, it's equal protection, 14th amendment protection. Yeah. And if you ever want us to sue, we're here for you. <laughs> well, there's been a, there's, periodically lawyers will come and, and express interest, but I don't want to go with a firm. I want somebody academic to lead it. I don't, I, I just, if we're really going to do it, we need, I need, I've, I keep poking my buddies at Harvard law and other places. Yale actually is the place where I've made the most inroads. Um, there's certainly a law firm that will take this on, but I don't think we should do that. I think we need an academic to do something this nuanced. Well, keep us posted. Okay. <laughs> Part two, the lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's so great to see you all. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review and tell your friends and colleagues to check us out and subscribe. See you next time.